Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Anthony Scaramucci, the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital and the SALT Conference, and for a brief period in 2017, the White House Communications Director. Anthony and I were scheduled to record the Friday morning he was named to the White House. That clearly didn't happen, but we circle back a few months after his return to Skybridge, and that conversation is replayed in the feed. Since then, he's invested some of Skybridge's assets in crypto, and last August, sold a piece of Skybridge to the now infamous Sam Bankman-Fried. Our conversation this time around covers Anthony's deals in the asset management space, his thematic investment in crypto, and unfortunate relationship with SBF. Along the way, we discuss entrepreneurship, risk-taking, maintaining conviction in a downturn, changing your mind, and resilience an attribute Anthony demonstrates time and time again. Before we get going, it's cold these days in the Northeast, and we've got a suggestion to warm your heart and mind. Get a fire going in the fireplace, make some hot chocolate, snuggle up next to your soulmate or dog, if that's better, keep the lights on low, and put away all your electronic devices. Uh, The last one only after you hit play on this week's show. When you're feeling all warm and lovey, pick up that phone and do two things. Go to iTunes, click five stars, or four, but not one, and write a note to me about how much you love the show. Then go to your podcast player, find your favorite Capital Allocators episode, press share, and send the episode to the person you think would most love hearing it. 
Sharing is part of our mission statement, and we're excited to bring you into the fold. I can't think of a better way to stay warm on a cold winter day. Thanks so much for spreading the word. Please enjoy my conversation with Anthony Scaramucci. Anthony, great to see you. It's always good to see you, Ted, and it's great listening to you. Congratulations on your podcast. I appreciate it. I thought it might be fun to start with just the whole concept of deal-making. You've had a series of business deals, You're selling your first hedge fund, buying the city bank business that created the Skybridge Fund of Funds, then before the White House, but almost selling it to Chinese. Every time I go to try to sell this company, though, it's not sellable. So it's almost like a capitalist horror story. I sold it to the Chinese. The government said I wasn't allowed to do that. I guess our small fund of funds was a national security risk, so CFIUS blocked it. And then I tried to sell it to Sam Bank, at least a third of it. Of course, he turned out to be a fraud. So I decided that I'm going to just ride this thing into the sunset, Ted, okay? I'm just going to hold on to this thing forever. But I mean, I think the good news, and I think you know this, the secret to being an entrepreneur, there is a secret, is just pushing, taking risks, failing. If you're a high-profile person like me, your failures are going to be magnified 5X to any of your successes. And so you have to roll with the punches if that just comes with the territory. But when you talk about deal-making, it just goes down to relationships. You've got to just be straight with people. 35 years in the business now, knock on wood, no U4 violations, no ADV part one or part two issues, don't have a personal trading account, run the business very ethically and in terms of his compliance centrism. We're probably not the smartest people on Wall Street. I think that's obvious, but I think we're super honest and I think we have very good longstanding relationships with our clients. And so what happens is deals come to you. People present ideas to you. Citibank situation 10, 11 years ago, that was presented to me. Mike Corbett, who went on to become the CEO of Citibank, was running their dispositions at that time. He was selling their non-core assets because of the TARP money they received in the 2008 banking crisis. And so when he brought me the idea, I gulped. I was like, okay, I don't think I can afford this. I don't think I'm scaled to buy the entire alternative asset management division of Citibank. And then I had to just tighten my belt, grab myself, if you will, by the shirt collar and say, okay, I'm going to do this. I mortgaged my house. I went out and borrowed money on a corporate loan. We basically LBO'd that business. And then we had this earnout structure. Citibank called it schmuck insurance. If we did really well with the business, they participated at a 25% revenue share for the first three years. The markets recovered and they did very well on. But I think deal-making is a combination of high integrity, having lots of good relationships, and people presenting ideas. I have found for me, if I'm proactively pursuing a deal, it doesn't work. If someone's coming to me with a deal and it makes sense for me, then I can usually get it done. How have you thought about price? It's sort of a general term, but particularly thinking about the Skybridge business that you almost sold before you went into the White House and then this transaction with Sam? I think about price as an intersection of fairness. Probably the best meeting of my career was in Hong Kong. I was with Lee Ka-Shing or Ka-Shing Lee, Superman, the property tycoon. He's now in his 90s. I sat in his office and he was 70 at the time. I was 35. I'll never forget this meeting, Ted. He comes in. He had just gotten done playing golf. He was sitting in his office. It was Sunday morning. He was having a cup of tea. He says to me, Anthony, what do you think of the U.S. stock market? I'm 35 years old. I'm like, if I'm talking in this meeting, I'm the stupidest person that I know. I said, you know, Mr. Lee, the market could go up or down. I said, but I'm 35. You're 70. I said, I need to talk to you about your life and what I can take from your life for the second half of my life. What could you tell me that I could learn from? And he regaled me in stories of making plastic flowers and then making a decision in 1968 when Mao was thinking about seizing the island of Hong Kong. The property prices went down. He bought into that panic and he began the process of becoming a tycoon. But he said something to me that I'll never forget. He says, Anthony, leave money on the table for your partners. Because ultimately, that's been the secret of my success. He said, when I cut a deal, I'm not looking for the last dollar. I'm looking to leave money on the table for my partners. He said, because let me tell you something, 
you do that, you'll always have partners. You'll always have people coming to your door, knocking on the door, asking you to do things with them. He said, the other thing is, he says, you'll be remarkably happy in your life. I said, why is that, Mr. Lee? He said, well, he said, if you ask for the last dollar and you're in the conversation with the guy and he gives you the last dollar, you walk out of the meeting, you're thinking, jam, I should have asked for $2 or $3. What happens is you create this perpetuation of never being happy with the situation. Leave money on the table for your partners. Price to me has always been a function of fairness. I'm looking to split the market with people. I'm not looking for the last dollar ever. I think in the transaction that we consummated with Sam, I think it was at five times revenues. That seemed to be where the market was at the time. I didn't ask for six times revenues. I didn't ask for five and a half times revenues. Seems like that seemed to be the intersection of fairness. Of course, Sam turned out to be a fraud is sad for me. And I look at that situation and think, well, okay, I certainly got that wrong. And of course, we have a tendency when people are victims of fraud or they've been near the blast zone of a fraud, we sweep them into it and we call them stupid or you have all this revisionist history now where people, oh, I knew he was a fraud and all this nonsense. But it's sad for me because he was a very bright kid and he had a great long-term vision for what he was doing. And so the fact that he was at a moral is sad because he hurt a lot of people myself included. When we last did this on the show was a little bit after you got back from the White House. And in your investment products, there was no crypto. It was like 2018. You've always invested with this sort of thematic conviction. And I'd love to hear, how did you get to crypto and Bitcoin to make it such an important part of your investment program? Let me start out by saying everybody is a long-term investor until they have short-term losses. And the minute they have short-term losses, they set their hair on fire and they've got to redo their investment thesis and so on and so forth. But I told clients, we're going to make this investment. It is a three to five year investment. It's a highly volatile asset, but it's an emerging technology that I think will be the grounding of the future of finance and it will be the grounding of the future of the way we do transactions because it's just better. It's a better product. If you are riding around in a horse and carriage and the horseless carriage comes along and there are people poo-pooing the horseless carriage and saying, well, that's just a fad. Well, it's not because it's a better product. Same thing with the internet. Bill Gates said it was a fad in the mid nineties. He's a brilliant guy. So obviously he made an adaptation and pivoted. We get things wrong sometimes. We're embarking upon new technology. So we have very high conviction about the blockchain People make a ton of money in this area of the marketplace after there's been a downdraft or a winter. And so I'm very optimistic about the next 12 to 18 months. But for me, when I got back from the White House and was told by the government that the Chinese conglomerate that had purchased SkyBridge, they were not allowed to purchase SkyBridge, okay, no problem, we'll take SkyBridge back. I was left with the Fed white paper, which came out in 2017, talking about the digitization of assets. And I remember being at the XM Bank before I became the White House communications director. I was the chief strategy officer at the XM Bank. Quick, funny story. Donald Trump was like, hey, what do you know about the XM Bank? I said, I don't really know anything. He said, oh, I don't know anything either. He said, Rand Paul wants to shut it down. I need somebody to go over there and figure it out and make a recommendation to me. Write me a very big, long paper on whether or not I should shut it down. You're not going to read the paper. He goes, oh, you're right. You're right. Just go over there and tell me what the hell I need to do. And so I went over there. I interviewed everybody. The XM Bank is an integral part of the great public-private partnerships that the government has set up over the years. 90-year-old institution. Always made money for the U.S. government. And it was definitely something we needed. And I'm glad the president opted to keep it open. But when I was over there, there was a couple of Fed officials that came to the bank and were talking about digitizing the U.S. dollar and doing it over the blockchain. And this is 2017. And the Winklevosses had spoken at the SALT conference in 2014 about Bitcoin. I was ignoring Bitcoin. I think there's a tweet of mine. I stupidly said in 2012, I don't know anything about Bitcoin and I don't care. Caveat emptor, sort of stuff that you say when you're ignorant. So there I was, rock hits me in the head. I said, wow, I got to learn about the blockchain. If the government is talking about digitizing the dollar and the Fed has a white paper out discussing digitization of currencies, I better learn about this. And then, of course, I was ejected from the White House 11 days after my job started. So the first thing I did when I got back to Skybridge was I bought the URL skybridgebitcoin.com. Told my staff here, we're going to have to learn more about digital assets. We did. We embarked upon it. 
did nothing in 2018, was about to pull the trigger in 2019, got sidetracked by what the Fed was doing. We waited, we didn't hit the trigger, but I had on my checklist three things. Number one was Bitcoin in particular reaching escape velocity pursuant to Metcalf's law. The idea that the network itself has value, that was Robert Metcalf's thesis, uh, the famous MIT professor. And so for me, uh, my checklist was 100 million users. Would Bitcoin get to 100 million users? It was trending there at the end of 2019. Number two, could I store it safely? Was there a place I could store it? You had the Mt. Gox hack and the bankruptcy of Mt. Gox. That was the first real centralized exchange that went belly up. Was there a safe place I could store it? And I made the decision that Abigail Johnson and Fidelity was a very safe place to store things. There's just a lot of procedures there and extra layers of insurance and cold storage. And so I got comfortable that we could put nine figures or the Bitcoin at a place like Fidelity. And then the third thing was regulation. It's not regulated yet. It's still a new frontier. You're very early in digital assets. But once the IRS, Ted, said that Bitcoin was intangible property, I didn't learn much in law school. I mean, what did I learn in law school? Don't be a lawyer. I thought that was the most obvious thing to learn in law school. <laughs> Property rights are pretty important in the United States. They're sacrosanct, frankly, for the American people. Bipartisan commitment, legal precedent that dates back to the Magna Carta. So that's before the inception of the country. You have 900 years of protection of property rights. And so when the IRS says that something is intangible, it is intangible property, it's very hard for the United States to take that away from you without giving you some kind of value for it. And so I said, all right, it'll eventually get fairly regulated. And so, lo and behold, the March 2020 debacle happens. We begin the recovery process in May, June, July. Obviously, the Fed is inducting tremendous amounts of liquidity into the market. I think Bitcoin was at 6,000 in March or April. Don't quote me, but I think roughly it's trending towards 16, 17,000 by the end of the year. We pulled the trigger on some assets. I think we bought our first Bitcoins in the 16 to 17,000 zone, which ironically is where it is right now. Why do we do it? We did it because there's a seismic thing happening. It will transform you to really understand what the blockchain is. It's just this wonderful de-layering mechanism between parties. And if we can go directly to each other without a third party, well, there'll be tremendous amounts of cost savings. You come to my restaurant, the Hunt and Fish Club, and you pay a wallet-to-wallet transfer and you bypass American Express or MasterCard. Let me just give you this math. Most restaurants are in the 10 to 15% zone on a net margin. If you can save 3%, that's a 20% increase in the net margin of the restaurant. So either they can lower prices, they can increase salaries. I mean, there's all these great economic advantages and these great economic efficiencies. So really understand the blockchain is to see the promise of that. And it's still very, very early. It's a clunky system right now. But as it develops and as it grows, I think it will be enormously transformative and just one quick frame of reference because we can never predict the future, but we can observe the past. Imagine it's 1998. I'm sitting in front of my fat box computer with my wired connected mouse. And underneath my desk is this modem that's going to dial up the internet and it's going to whir and burr and catch a dial tone. And then 35 to 40 seconds later, my landing page of AOL telling me I have mail and there I am sitting there with this clunkster thing known as the internet, and I can buy a Pez gun from eBay or perhaps a book from Amazon, and I can answer my email, look how clever this thing is. But what if somebody came to you from the future, 24 years later, said, hey, by the way, in 2023, you're going to have a flat screen computer. It's going to be hooked to a modem that's operating at infinite speeds relative to where you're at right now. And oh, by the way, there'll be billions of people downloading and streaming 4K video on this thing known as the internet. There'll be trillions of dollars of transactions taking place on the internet. And oh, by the way, you're going to go through a pandemic and you're going to use the internet and you're going to use Zoom and Teams and all these different protocols to do your business someday. That's what happened. This evolution of the internet, Clunkster in 1998, to where we are today, I think that's the blockchain. I think we're in 1998 on the blockchain. So we made a very big thematic investment. 
People say, oh, well, it's gone wrong for you guys. Well, yes and no. It's roughly the same price that it was two years ago. And think about all the things that have happened in terms of the excesses, the greed, the fraud, the over leverage in the system. I think as those things are cleansed out of the system, you'll see that there's real demand for this stuff. When you've done the work to buy into this theme, how do you think about it in the context of a portfolio and position sizing and opportunity cost? Well, there's a lot of different ways to do that, right? So you could do the, okay, I'm just going to totally protect my business franchise, do nothing, which I think is a mistake because that would be against my sense for innovation and risk-taking and entrepreneurship. It's a middle ground where you can own a small piece of it, or you can do what we did, which is a 10 to 15% position in the portfolio, which is sizable in a portfolio like ours. And then what we did was we developed crypto products. We have an ETF, we have a unit investment trust, we have a coin fund, which is a diversified coin fund, all of which did very poorly in 2022, but I think are very well set up for 2023. I guess what I would say to you is I needed to size it so that it would have a meaningful impact if we get it right over a three to five year period of time. And of course, if we've got it completely wrong, let's say Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger are right. They beat you on a bet. And so I'm a humble guy. They may be right on this as well. But if it goes to zero, it's not going to knock us out of business and it's not going to be a permanent capital loss. So I think you don't want to oversize it and go above and beyond. I mean, maybe you could max it at 30. I think it did get to 30, but that was really through price appreciation. Buffett does have another great aphorism. I would rather be roughly right than precisely wrong. So I'm not sitting there taking things down to the ninth decimal. We're looking at it saying, okay, we want to have it sized appropriately. So if we get this right, it'll be meaningful. But I also think that there's something about my generation where we should be open-minded to embracing the technologies of our children. I have 30-year-old children. My son has his own blockchain fund. He was a blockchain skeptic, believe it or not. I was more of a blockchain bull than he was. This kid is a Stanford Business School grad, blockchain skeptic, but came around about a year and a half ago once he actually started seeing the applications. American Express and Visa, they have to come up with new things. It's just like the phone companies had to come up with new things when it became clear that you were going to do a costless phone call between New York and Rome over the internet. Well, the phone companies better come up with other services and other product ideas. And that's what MasterCard and American Express are going to have to do now. I'd love to dive in a little bit on SAM, SBF, FTX. Why don't you just take me through your path of how you got to know him, what you did with him, what you saw along the way? So it's very important to describe it as it happened and not to revise it. I think what ends up happening, there's obviously a great aphorism that people remember things the way they need to, not necessarily the way they happen. So I don't want to overly color it or give you my point of view after we've discovered that he's a fraud. I want to go through it chapter and verse and give you at least my feelings at the time, what I was thinking and why we were thinking what we were thinking. I'll take you back to June or July of 2021. The first time I met Sam was over Zoom. He was based in Hong Kong. Mutual friend made the introduction. Sam wanted to sponsor the SALT conference. There was no SALT conference in 2020 because of COVID. We couldn't get a SALT conference done in May of 2021. We made the strategic and, frankly, I think the bold decision to do a SALT conference in September of 2021. We had 2,000 people at the Javits Center. Sam wanted to sponsor that conference. He had heard great things about it. He was laying out for me on that Zoom call his vision for his exchange. And so FTX wasn't going to be a crypto exchange per se. It had started as a crypto exchange, but it was going to migrate into being an exchange of everything. And he was explaining to me his vision, the eventual tokenization of all types of different securities and trading things over the blockchain as opposed to when I started in the business, it was T plus five. So for the young people listening, that was the trade date and that it would settle five business days later. It's now T plus two. But over the blockchain, if you understand the technology and we get it right, it could be T plus zero. And so Sam was espousing his vision for that. 
incredibly bright kid, well, pedigree. He's from MIT. He grew up on the campus of Stanford University. He's explaining to me what he was doing. He had just sponsored the FTX Arena in Miami. And so I said, okay, my team wanted to accept his sponsorship. He seemed like a credible guy. I certainly thought he was. We allowed him to be one of the principal sponsors. I think it was below New York Digital Investment Group and others, but he was up there as a pretty reasonable sponsor. I do these VIP dinners at our events. I had him at a dinner with a lot of luminaries. I won't mention their names because all these guys are sensitive guys. They get pissed off when you mention their name. Oh, you put my name in the same podcast as Sam Bankman-Fried and they get mad at you for some reason, but that's fine. So I won't mention any of the names, but very high profile people in the hedge fund businesses, very high profile people in national security, et cetera. Sam was at the table with me. We had a one table, 20 person discussion. He got up from the table. He was like, well, this is incredible. It's very helpful to me because I want to cross over between the DeFi space into TradeFi and we should do more together. I said, okay, great. Let's let our teams figure it out. My team came back to me and said that FTX wanted to do a three-year sponsorship deal with Skybridge where they would sponsor our soul conferences. We would do four conferences. We're now doing one in New York, one in Abu Dhabi. We just did one in Singapore. And the fourth conference was actually Crypto Bahamas. FTX will have its imprimatur on it. We'll curate the thing for them. We brought luminaries and stars and crypto people and assortment of hedge fund managers, but also lots of cryptocurrency projects, including Algorand, Solana, guys from Ethereum, a 2,500-person event. It was actually a great event. That's the irony of it. And it would have been an even bigger event this year if Sam himself wasn't a fraud. But here we are. We're building this relationship. We have this great event in April. We're working more closely together on a couple of different things. I go to have lunch with him in August, and we sit down at lunch, and we start discussing things. And I said, listen, you know, I'd be very happy to be on point as a senior relationship person to help you transform FTX into this everything exchange. At that time, he was a darling of Washington. He was courted by regulators. He was courted by men and women in the Congress senators. He obviously read these reports. He was visiting people in the White House. He was a very well-regarded young man. And he had some bright, sensible ideas about regulation. Now, some of the people in DeFi didn't like some of those ideas because you're in decentralized finance and some of those ideas are centralizing. They didn't all like his ideas, but he was very well-regarded. And so now this is August. He says, okay, well, what about entering into a transaction? What sort of transaction are we thinking about, I had proposed 15% selling of the company. Oh no, I want to go bigger than that. I don't like doing that. I had shook hands with him on the idea that I would come in and help him build those relationships, grow his Rolodex, if you will. It's an old fashioned term for outlook, but you know what I'm talking about. And so I said, okay, I'm in. He bought 30% of the company. It's in the paper now, so it's okay to talk about it. He paid 45 million for 30% of the company. There was an understanding that he had a right over three years to buy 85% of the company at some point. We shook hands. We announced that deal at Salt, New York in 2022. And so you just have to think about the lightning moves here. We shook hands in August. We did the transaction in September. In the first part of November, we're discovering that Sam is actually a fraud and he's actually moving money from customer accounts into his personal trading account, which is obviously a direct violation of its terms of service. I wasn't ready to call it a fraud when it first happened because I obviously want to give everybody the benefit of the doubt. But now that his senior executives have pled guilty, I think it's pretty clear that it is a fraud. You'll probably ask me this, I'll answer it. How did I find out about it? Well, this doesn't reflect well. I mean, this is probably a sign of naivete, but I think it's important to share it because I want people to learn from what I'm about to say. And I certainly don't want anybody to be in the position that Skybridge is now in or myself is now in. You want to avoid fraud in our industry at all costs. I guess I was naive to it because of what we saw. We saw a very pristine data room. We saw audited financials. We saw, and again, I won't mention the names, but there were 25 other luminary venture capital investors, hedge fund billionaires, all of which were investors in Sam's company. Remember, he was giving me the money. As my old boss, Lloyd Blankfein, points out, he says, hey, man, that's a big distinction. Don't be so hard on yourself, okay? But it is what it is. And I will point out to you that we got duped. I didn't see it. And so now 
I had gone to the Middle East with him. We had had successful trips, successful meetings. He was embarking upon raising another billion dollars. Thank God that didn't come to pass. But I do think that that Middle East trip was a precursor to the pin being put in the balloon because he had said some things in some regulatory meetings that were upsetting to CZ, who's the founder of Binance. And Binance was an early stage investor in FDX. And so I think CZ said, okay, you're in my neighborhood now saying bad things about me. I've got a half a billion dollars of your token. Let me put those up for sale. And again, this is my personal opinion. I don't think CZ thought he was going to collapse FDX. I think he thought he was brushing Sam back. I think he was sending him a message that what you're doing is unsportsmanlike conduct as a result of which I'm going to get rid of my FTT tokens. I don't think he realized that Sam was in the precarious position or the fatalistic position that he was actually in. I'll tell you this, thank God that happened because I certainly didn't want friends of mine who I've been friends with for 25, 30 years to put money into Sam's company if it was a fraud. And so FTX began to collapse. I originally thought, frankly, it was a rescue finance situation. I didn't think it was a fraud. When I had spoken to FTX executives, they indicated to me there was a mismatch between short-term and long-term liabilities. If you know the story of Lehman Brothers, that's actually how Lehman failed. They had the assets. They just couldn't make the assets work for the short-term run that they were experiencing. And that's why they declared bankruptcy. I said, okay, it's a rescue finance position. How much you guys need? They said a billion dollars. That was seven o'clock on November 7th on Monday night. At 10 o'clock, call came in and it was four and a half billion dollars. I said, whoa, how do you go from one billion to four and a half billion dollars? And then when I hung up the phone, it's 10 o'clock at night. I looked over at my wife and I said, listen, something's really wrong here. I'm going to book a flight to the Bahamas. And I went on the internet, I booked myself a 6.55 a.m. JetBlue flight, and I flew down to the Bahamas on November the 8th. And then that's when I knew there was a real problem because there were executives there that told me what they thought was happening. And they explained to me why they thought that this was happening. And I told those executives, well, you have to tell the authorities. You have to be very honest about it. Sam didn't spend much time with me that day. I did have the opportunity to speak to his father, who was very distraught. And when I flew back, Sam had people believing that CZ was going to make this investment in the company. But if what the people were saying to me were true, then there was no way CZ could make that investment. And obviously, the very next day, CZ reported that he was not going to make the investment. And then they declared bankruptcy. And then the rest of the saga unfolded, and it became very, very clear what he was doing. I say this is a great sadness. I would also say this as a parent. The pain that Joe Bankman was experiencing, Professor Joe Bankman, tenure professor, Stanford Law School tax professor, somebody I admire, somebody I like, frankly, his pain is something that won't leave me. As a parent, the pathos of that is still very troublesome. The other thing I would say, and I said this at your alma mater, Jeff Sonnenfeld invited me to the Yale School of Management Symposium, and I said to Jeff and maybe 250 of his delegates, I said, read Sam's testimony that he was about to give to the Congress before he was arrested. And in that testimony, you'll see a very troubled young man. There's a mental health issue here, as well as so many other issues. Now, again, mental health issue doesn't give you permission to create an $8 billion fraud or whatever the number turns out to be. I'm not suggesting that, but there's a lot going on here. And so for me, I'm troubled by it. For me, it's hurt my company. I mean, who's kidding who? I mean, the good news is, well, buy our shares back from the bankruptcy estate and we'll rebuild our company. We're tough people, tenacious. I'm not someone that lives with a lot of regret. I'm a entrepreneur. You have to take risks in the world to be successful. And again, as I said, when I'm taking risks and I'm failing, it gets magnified 4X because of my profile. My profile is my own doing. So you live or die by the sword. But here's what I would say. I would say this to all the young entrepreneurs that love your podcast and are listening in. Don't let things like this dissuade you from taking risks. It's certainly not going to dissuade me. Okay, I'm already over it. I've dusted myself off. It's 2023. I'm ready to get back in the pocket and start throwing the ball again. I'm not saying that I won't get intercepted. I'm not saying I won't get sacked or fumble the football. Certainly that will happen again. This will not be the last mistake that I make in my career as an entrepreneur. 
But what you can't do is you can't let things like this dissuade you from going forward. I have friends of mine that were devastated in the Bernard Madoff fiasco 15 or so years ago. And many of them swore off hedge fund investing, even though Bernard Madoff wasn't a hedge fund. They swore off this or they swore off that. That was a mistake. In 2000, I got my ass kicked in the technology bubble, the collapse, the NASDAQ collapse, which started in March of 2000. Many of my friends swore off technology investing. They said, oh, that's it. Never going to invest in technology again. I've been burnt. That's it. And that was obviously a really stupid decision because the ensuing 22 years, the sector of technology, which includes Facebook and Amazon and Apple Computer and Google, that sector is arguably one of the best investments in U.S. economic history. So you had high volatility, early stage formation of the sector, you get burnt, and then you swore off the sector, you're missing out on great opportunities. So I would tell people, listen, we made a mistake allowing Sam to invest in our business. I didn't see it. I saw him as the Mark Zuckerberg of cryptocurrency and creating a future exchange. Our exchanges, the stock exchange is a 1790 origination. The CME, I think, is like an 1880 or 1890 origination. I thought Sam was building a 21st or 22nd century exchange. Somebody will eventually do that. It won't be him. But I had him as the Mark Zuckerberg of crypto. It turned out he was the Bernie Madoff of crypto. I got that wrong. But here's the thing. When you're an entrepreneur, you can get it wrong. But lamenting about getting it wrong, I think is a big mistake. I don't get up in the morning and kick myself in the pants and say, Jesus, I talked to a reporter in the White House. I thought he was a friend of mine. He wasn't. I ended up getting fired. Let me lament that decision to talk to that reporter. I don't do that. I'm not going to do that with Sam. You take the millstone of regret and you take the millstone of mistakes in your life, that millstone, and you take it off your neck and you put it down beside you and you go forward and you live your life in the present and thinking about the future. You don't sit there dwelling about the past. Not saying I don't learn from the past, not saying that hopefully it won't make me wiser or perhaps more cautious in certain situations as it should, but it should not make you overly cautious or shouldn't turn you off on things. You've got to stay in the risk-taking side of the business. As you look forward from here, crypto blockchain is still an important part of what you're doing. How do you think about what's changed in the risk-reward of your investments in the space? Well, ironically, they're probably less risky because of the downside volatility that we've experienced. I think we've flushed out a lot of selling. So if you said to me, okay, listen, you're going to make your first Bitcoin investment at $17,000. you are expecting regulation to be positive. It turns out that it's not positive, or at least the country's waiting to regulate. You've got cash ETFs for Bitcoin in Canada. You have ETPs in Europe, but you're not going to have a cash ETF in the US, and they're going to wait on regulation. In addition to that, there will be a boom-bust cycle inducted by the Fed's monetary policy. Bitcoin's going to go to 68 or 69,000, but then there's going to be a long-term capital management moment. For your younger people, that was a hedge fund in 1998 that collapsed. They probably had a $4 billion balance sheet and notional value of one and a quarter trillion dollars through their derivative exposure. And so when they got something wrong, it unraveled the entire firm, causing mini economic crisis, the Fed had to step in and get all the banks to bail out long-term capital management. And so you have a situation in the blockchain where there's a crisis, people are over-levered, they're over-exuberant. You and I are old enough now to know that there's no new stories. They're all remixes of old stories. So long-term capital management, Bernard Madoff, this was like if John Merriweather, the founder of long-term capital management, had a baby with Bernie Madoff, they created the crypto bros. Okay, this is what these guys went out and did. Three arrows, fraud, leverage, over leverage, Celsius, the Terra Luna project. They were trying to create a stablecoin backed by a 100 vol asset known as Bitcoin, which wasn't sustainable. Became the seventh largest market cap in the crypto universe. Uh, and then of course, Sam, who was positioning himself as a white knight, turned out that he was one of the biggest rogues of all. So all of that happened. We bought our first Bitcoin, 16,000. Everything I just mentioned happened. Bitcoin's trading 16 to 17,000. You'd be like, okay, that's fairly sturdy asset. People would say, oh no, it's a really bad asset. It dropped 65% last year. 
but Tesla dropped 65% last year. Amazon dropped 50% last year. I could tell you a tale of woe for a lot of high growth, interesting companies that are down anywhere from 50 to 65%, in some cases down more than that. You have to put it in the context of where we are. The first half of 2022 was the worst since 1970. The whole year was as bad as the market's been since 2008. Growth stocks are down more, the NASDAQ down 30, S&P down 20. Now, maybe we have more to go. History has a tendency to sometimes rhyme. We could be in a really bad first quarter for 2023, like we were in 2009, where the markets bottomed in March. It's possible. Don't know. But here's what I know. If I stay invested and my long-term thesis is correct, my clients are going to be unbelievably well-rewarded. And this is probably a really good time to buy. I'm willing to bet, obviously, the firm and my personal assets that five years from now, we're going to be very happy with the investments that we made. What do you think you'd have to see to change your mind? It's a really good question. I guess I would have to see a capitulation of projects. Jeff Bezos said something fascinating. I listened to his 20th anniversary interview of Amazon, and I'll just take you back. I think Amazon went from $116 to $6 back in 2000. There was a picture of Bezos in one of those old-fashioned bombs with a sizzle coming out of the top. It said, Amazon.bomb. The age of this internet retailer is now over. The stock went from 116 to 6 And people said, okay, you know, Jeff's going out of business. That was a failed internet bookseller. And what Jeff said in the interview at his 20th anniversary, I didn't believe that because I was looking at daily runs. Our sales were going up and our customer base was growing. And so, yes, our stock was in the toilet, but our fundamentals were there. So you'd have to show me a decrease in wallets. You'd have to show me a evacuation of projects. You have to tell me that Jack Mahler's and people that are working on the Lightning Network are bailing on the Lightning Network. You'd have to show me that the NFT projects that are going on at Solana or Ethereum are all shutting down, and now there's not going to be any projects to speak of. You'd have to show me that the New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ, both of which are working on digitizing and tokenizing securities are going to stop doing that. You'd have to tell me that Larry Fink said, we're going to have a Bitcoin trust that we're marketing, and now he's not going to do that. You have to tell me that Abigail Johnson, who's now got Bitcoin and Ethereum at Fidelity Digital Assets, she's no longer going to do that. She's wiping that away. She made an announcement in April that she's going to have 401ks, as I mentioned, we're a part of, where you can invest in Bitcoin. We're no longer going to do that. So you'd have to have a mega and very, very big macro reversal. And so if you sat here six months from now and you said, okay, Barry Fink says no moss to his Coinbase deal and no moss to the Bitcoin trust. Abigail Johnson has pulled out. The Grayscale Bitcoin trust is going to zero and being liquidated. They're under stress right now because they're trying to get it converted into an ETF and government will allow that at least for now. All of those things come to pass and I'll sit here and say, wow, I really got this wrong half a trillion dollars that went into the space over the 14 years since inception, they also got it wrong alongside of me. I really got this wrong. The frauds, the over leverage, unfortunately, that's concomitant with new technologies. We know what Jay Gould did in the Robert Barron era, that there was fraud as the phone system was getting set up. We know there was fraud in the automotive industry and there were union busting and all types of corruption that took place as these new technologies were developing. The dot-com bubble, where everything had a dot-com on its last name and many of those businesses went to zero. Uh, But here's an interesting point. Pets.com went to zero. They had a big Super Bowl ad. Pets.com, bankrupt. But Chewy.com reinvented that business model. Webvans, which was delivering groceries to people in their local neighborhoods, went to zero. But Instacart and DoorDash and Uber Eats is thriving. So what ends up happening, the technology gets better and the ideas live on because they're able to be implemented through better technology. And so you'll have to tell me that all of those projects, all that technological innovation is stopping and a result of which it's going to go to zero. Now, listen, you're a smart guy. I've been humbled by life and I've been humbled by markets. So I'm always looking for smarter people than me. When somebody like Charlie Munger 
or calls it venereal disease or Warren Buffett calls it rat poison, I take that very seriously. I'm not sitting here poo-pooing them as some of the Bitcoiners are, oh, they're old men, they're out to lunch. I take it very seriously. I think they are missing that there is a seismic generational wave of people that are going to accept digital currency and are going to do their transactions that way. I think they're missing that there are billions of people that are not tied into the Western SWIFT banking system, the ACH SWIFT banking system, and are not beneficiaries of it. So they could be in Africa or parts of the world that are still underdeveloped or emerging where these digital assets may be safer for them than their inflation-based fiat currencies that they're operating with. They may be right. I'm not saying that they're not. I mean, they could be, but they may be wrong. And if they're wrong, at least I'm offering you a thesis as to why they could be wrong. And here's the last thing I'll say, which I think is very important, is I was in a meeting, Sun Valley Conference, Allen and Company. There's a gentleman by the name of Jeff Bezos speaking about his internet bookseller. It was the year 2000. He was a 36-year-old man. He's a contemporary of mine. And I was taking copious notes about what he was saying. And he said, listen, people are judging me as an internet bookseller. They've got that wrong. I'm actually an everything seller, but I started with books because they're easily transportable. They're roughly the same size and I'm dot plotting the warehouses and it's an efficient way for me to engineer the long-term success and gateways of this company. And once I get the dot plot right, I'll switch on all the other SKUs and I'm going to be a big, formidable retailer. And oh, by the way, I'm going to lose money for the next 10 years. And the reason I'm going to lose this money is I'm going to build this system. And then when the time is right, I'll turn on the profitability and it'll become a very successful system. And he's thinking process like an engineer that he is. I wrote down all these great notes. I said, okay, I'm going to go buy this stock. The next person to speak was a guy named Warren Buffett. That was a 70-year-old version of Warren Buffett. He got up there and he said, yeah, that's a really nice young man. That guy, Jeff Bezos, a very fine young man. But by the way, I would never, ever buy that stock. He just told you he's not going to make money for 10 years. And by the way, can you believe that the market capitalization of Amazon today in the year 2000 is larger than the storied Sears Roebuck? And look at all the hard assets that Sears Roebuck has and look at the ether that Amazon represents. And I will never buy that stock. I took the copious notes that I had written and I'd ripped them up and I put them in the waste bin. I said, okay, I'm not going to buy that stock. <laughs> and I'm going to listen to Warren Buffett. And so he may have been right about hedge funds versus the S&P. Although that was a really unfair bet for you guys because the beta that you were taking relative to his beta, it was almost impossible for you guys unless you were going to do something outside of your investment mandate. But that's neither here nor there. It was still high profile and a lot of fun to make the bet. But he has been wrong about things. He admits that openly that he has been wrong about things. He's missed opportunities or he's missed stocks. And lo and behold, he's one of the largest holders of Apple Computer, which is outside of the bailiwick of his original thesis of not investing in things like technology. I'm just pointing out to you, I don't want to be wrong about this. I don't want to miss this. I think this is a generational opportunity. I look wrong right now. But maybe you'll interview me in a year or two or three years. That's four years since my last interview. Maybe sometime in 2026, you'll interview me and I'll have to eat humble pie on the interview. Or you'll say, wow, you know, you had the balls to get that right. Well, only time will tell. So alongside any one of these thematic views, you have the business. And there's always the challenge of surviving those downturns, which is something you've done in a lot of different iterations, a lot of different ways. So I'd love to hear what you're thinking about the Skybridge business today? Well, I'm retracing. So you have to remember what I was thinking about the Skybridge business is that we were going to sell 30% to the second largest cryptocurrency exchange that was about to become an everything exchange. So now that that's turned out to be a fraud, what I am now thinking is very similarly the way I was thinking in 2008, where I had an asset I have really good relationships around the world. I think, frankly, the people that know me and have done business with me, by and large, they like me. And so I'm in an opportunistic phase for Skybridge where I'm open-minded to a host of different possibilities. Could I buy an asset management company and merge it into Skybridge? Could we start a new fund inside of Skybridge and incubate it and grow it? Could I team up 
with a private equity firm and do something transformational where we drop SkyBridge into a bigger enterprise, that's possible as well. Weirdly, I don't see anything different. We got kicked in the teeth, dusted ourselves off, and now we'll take that same approach. I do believe that in the next six to 12 months, you'll be hearing from SkyBridge. You'll hear me something positive from SkyBridge about what we're doing in terms of our growth plan, who we're connecting into, and what we're going to be a part of. I don't know exactly what it is right at this moment, primarily because we're dealing with the aftermath of FDX. We're two months out from the exposure of his fraud. I'm in the process of negotiating with the bankruptcy people, the repurchase of the 30% stake that Sam bought in the company. And I think once that's done, I think we can then take a clear-headed view of the different options and the opportunities. But we know each other a long time. I'm like, you're you allowed to curse on this podcast? Sure, right absolutely. Yeah, I'm like a fucking cockroach. Okay, if you think I'm going down <laughs> after the nuclear bomb goes off, then you've missized me. I'm a little tough son of a bitch. And so I will find a way, hook or crook, to make this work for the firm, where it can work for our clients. And I think people that bet against us are going to be sorely disappointed. And by the way, if you think I'm dead, you better cremate my ass because I'm going to crawl out of the grave to make it work. I think that's people have to understand that there's an X factor here at Skybridge, okay? We are very determined, and I love what I do. I love being an entrepreneur. I love the firm. I love the people that have bet on us, and I've loved the employees that are with me. I'm excited about the future. I'm also recognizing that we're coming out of the post-COVID world. We got our teeth kicked in during COVID, but there's a post-COVID world. I think there's going to be great opportunities ahead. So I can't pinpoint it today. The irony was I would have had a pinpoint for you in September, and I would have gotten that completely wrong. There's always something interesting going on in your life in addition to all the business stuff. What else is going on outside of Skybridge? I've taken a back seat in the political arena. Since I got fired from the White House, I did speak out against President Trump. I felt he was obviously the wrong messenger for the movement of the Republican Party. You've got smarter, younger more effective people, more confident, less insecure people to take the mantle of leadership in the Republican Party. And you better do it quickly because you're really fracturing that party. You need somebody that can bring that party back together and unify it. I'm taking a backseat there. I just participated in a reality television show, which was a lot of fun for me, called Special Forces. I was in the Jordanian desert with 16 celebrities doing a Navy SEAL British SAS survival training course. To make you laugh, one of the directing staff, who's a former SAS officer, he said, yeah, we casted you because we thought you were some Wall Street, pansy-ass, entitled (laughs) cream puff. I guess the guy didn't realize I grew up in a blue-collar neighborhood. I think I surprised him with how fucking nuts I am. The show was a lot of fun. I'm sure there'll be fun stuff like that. But here's the thing. Some people go on vacation and they go to Hawaii. I go on vacation and do reality shows. It's not like it's taking away from the business. It's just fun for me to do. I'll be writing another book. I wrote a book on Algorand last year. I wrote a book on Bitcoin. I've decided to make these books 100 pages or less. I want them to be plain reads where you can read them in two to three hours. I just think we've lost our attention span. I'm in the process of writing another book right now. It's going to be a book on resilience, and it's a book on how you train your brain to take pain train the brain to take pain. Because if you can train the brain to take pain, once you're through the pain, you always come out stronger on the other side. I think it's about expectation management too. I feel very grateful. I don't think if you had saw the 16-year-old version of me and said, okay, here's how your life's going to unfold. It's been beyond my wildest dreams. Now, I'm certainly not the richest or I'm not the most famous or whatever the things that people are looking for in terms of status totems in life but that's not it for me. I'm in for the experience. I'm in for the journey. I'm not really as concerned about the destination. I'm convinced that Skybridge has survived and for the most part thrived for a couple of reasons. Number one, we're into the journey. Number two, we're running it with high integrity. When you're decent and honest and you live by Lee Cushing's ethos of leaving money on the table for other people, you always find opportunity. You always find people to do business with. We'll see what happens, but I'm having a lot of fun. And I like the challenges. If you call me and I tell you I'm bored, sell the top. Something bad's going to happen because if things are going too well, that's boring. When you got bad shit happening, 
It's like you're engaged in the cockpit. I don't like flying autopilot. <laughs> That's great. Anthony, I'm going to ask you a couple of closing questions and we'll wrap it up. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? I guess my real, real hobby, aside from trying to get in the gym once a day, is reading. I have a new podcast that I'm about to launch called An Open Book. What is the podcast about? It's about books and authors. So I've interviewed people like Robert Greene, 48 Laws of Power, Daniel Silva, Maggie Haberman on her new Trump book, a whole cavalcade of different authors, high-profile authors, because I like reading. And what I would say to you about a book, think about the time and energy of you writing your book or me writing a book. So you have a dedicated author that's doing a tremendous amount of research. It could be a fiction, so it's historical research, or it's a fiction about people, so they have to learn psychology, or think about a book about history, all the research that goes into a book. And so here's a gift to you. Someone's giving you a three to 10 hour experience where they've distilled months of their writing and months of their research and great editors to provide you with something that you can enrich your life from or learn from. My podcast, An Open Book, is a 45 minute interview with an author, but also I'm an open book. I like being open about shit. People ask me questions. I tell them exactly what I think, whether they like it or not. What's your biggest investment pet peeve? I think overconfidence. I think my pet peeve is when I'm talking to a management team, I'm talking to a hedge fund manager, I'm talking to somebody that has a new idea, is overconfidence. I was in a meeting once. I'm going to get in trouble by telling you this story, especially if Andy Klein's listening because he'll be pissed at me for telling the story. But Andy was one of the guys that helped me get Skybridge started. He wanted to live in Europe. And so I ended up buying his shares back early on. And he's a great guy. We were in a meeting with Ed Matthias, who was one of the vice chairman of Carlisle. It's 2005. We're getting the meeting and we're talking about Skybridge. And Matthias looks over at the two of us and he says, so... Sounds like an interesting idea, this concept of Skybridge and the idea that you're about to unfold. So what are the chances of your success? How do you calibrate it? It's a brand new startup company. How do you calibrate it? Andy looks at him and says, 100%. And Ed looks at him and goes, 100%? I look at Andy and goes, 100%. I said, what's fucking 100%? I mean, I can get fucking killed. I can step off the curb tonight. And it was like wildly, wildly overconfident. Now, by the way, Skybridge did succeed. And if you ask me, what are the chances of us failing going forward? I don't know the answer to that. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to put every piece of fiber and molecule of my body and brain chemistry and making it a success. But there's so many things outside of our control, which we both know. We've had friends of ours die and we've had illnesses and happens and we can't predict. But so my pet peeve is overconfidence. I think people that are overconfident creates a very dangerous situation because it's okay to have confidence and it's okay to have conviction. I'm not saying otherwise. You asked me a great question about the blockchain, what would change my conviction, but I'm not sitting here speaking to you with absolute certainty about the blockchain. I'm not speaking to you with absolute certainty about Skybridge. I'm telling you, this is my track record. This is what I'm good at. I'm a survivor. I'm tenacious. I love what I'm doing. I think we're creative and commercial. So I think great things are going to happen. But I don't know. I can't sit here and definitively tell you, oh, yeah, I don't know. But I do have confidence and I do have passion and energy. But I don't want it to come across as overconfident. I don't want it to come across as I think I know something that I don't. I think that's very, very dangerous. It's very dangerous on a political leader. It's very dangerous on an entrepreneur, a business leader. You have to have that sense of fallibility, and you have to recognize your own fallibility, and you have to be humble about it. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? My parents have had a big impact on my life, and I've had mentors in college, but I would say the two people that have had the biggest impact on my life, and you're going to be mad at me now, but I am Italian, so I'm going to say three people because you know, I'm not going to just say two people. <laughs> But I would say the Holy Trinity for me in my career are Ken Langone, Dick Grasso, and Vinny Viola. Three very different people, but they're all very close friends of mine, and they're close friends with each other. And just two minutes on each, Langone, the former founder of Home Depot, he's 87 years young now. I grew up in his hometown. Can't say that he grew up in my hometown. 
and he was a legend in our town. I got to meet him when I was 16 or 17 years old. I had acne on my face and my polyester suit. He's in the same office. Ken said something to me, which I tell young people. Hey, my father gave me my last name clean. You never do anything to dishonor your dad. My dad worked on a crane, hot and cold weather, 42 years. When I got my job at Goldman, my dad was like, hey, man, I don't want you ever complaining about that job. I'm like, why, Pop? Because, well, you're indoors, you're out of direct sunlight, and there's no heavy lifting. Recognize what you got. (laughs) That's Kenny. Dick Grosso, same level of integrity. But I think what I got from Dick is warmth. I don't mean warmth by the heat in his office. That guy had the office temperature at 150. You were sweating in there. And why do you have it? Ah, I don't want people to stay in the office. Heat him up. Warmth in terms of his personage as a guy. He was a warm guy. And after 9-11, I saw what he did anonymously for so many different families. And I would say about Dick, I mean, come on. The attack happened on the 11th. I think he got the stock exchange open on 17th. And the work that he and his team had to do to do that, I think, will never be forgotten by the people that were there. And then the last person is the great philosopher king and the founder of Virtu, who was also the president of the Mercantile Exchange, Vinnie Viola. Viola is a Army vet. He's a West Point grad. He's probably the smartest person that I know personally. He's the owner of the Florida Panthers. What I've always taken from Vinnie is a process, a discipline, showing up being there and caring. I couldn't get it down to two people because I'm Italian. I had to get all three of them that have had big impacts on me. But those are three very special people in my life. What type of investment do you gravitate to like a moth to the flame? I'm going to really embarrass myself now. And I've lost so much money doing this, but I gravitate to young people with bold ideas. Listen, I've made some money doing that as well. If you took the money I lost and the money I made from these stupid investments that I make, I've probably matched the S&P because I have had some hits that make up for the losses. But if a group of young people come into my office and they pitch me on an idea and I'm a pay it forward type of person, am I in for 250, a half a million dollars? Probably. All right, let's see what the hell happens. Some of them end up working here after they blow up. Some of them go on and make great money. And some of them I've invested in two or three times on different ventures together. But yeah, I am a sucker, if you want to call it that. You come into my office with a great idea, I'm in. Although I did miss Uber. Travis came to see me. I think Uber had a 50 or $100 million valuation at the time. And I was like, wait, wait, what? This is an unknown black car. It's going to pick up my daughter. It's going to drive her around New York City. And you're saying, we don't know who the person is. And we're going to do it over the app. And it's the new sharing economy. Go fuck yourself. So I probably missed a $100 million action. And in the meantime, if you look at my American Express bill, all it is is my daughter with Uber, Uber, Uber all over the place. So I got that completely wrong. All right, last one for you, Anthony. What's, of all of these adventures, been the most challenging moment of your career? I would say 2008 from a perspective of we were still a small company and it was a very rough year. A couple of my friends said, hey, you really shut this down, Skybridge. You're not going to make it. And I remember thinking, they're probably right. But over my fucking dead body, am I shutting this thing down? Okay, and then we went on to make it. And so that was very challenging. I had a lot of sleepless nights. It's different now. I am more well-capitalized today than I was 14 years ago. So I have more staying power and more durability. But I was probably in a more tenuous situation in 2008 than I am today. But I would say mentally, the firing from the White House from a psychological point of view, I'm going to set the scene for you, okay? My wife and I are fighting. I mean, she hated Donald Trump almost as much as Melania hates him. And she was talking about super high hatred, We almost got divorced. Frankly, she filed for divorce on me. We had opposition research written about me that ended up on the front page of the New York Post. Hey, if you're in politics, you can't complain about it. No self-pity there, but that did happen. And so you've got all this personal trauma happening, the humiliation of being fired, the pressure in that situation, I think in some ways was worse than 2008. But you learn a lot about yourself when that happens. Again, what are you made of? Can you pick yourself up? Can you use your sense of self-humor and your reflection? Mel Brooks once said, relax, none of us are getting out of here alive. You know, don't take yourself that seriously. (laughs) So, I mean, to me, 
having to go through that and prove that I could handle it and I could turn it into something. I can remember August of 2017, I was walking on that Esplanade in Santa Monica in California, third or fourth street, wherever it is, like an open outdoor shopping mall. My then 25-year-old son, he turned to me, put his arm around me, said, hey, dad, are you going to be okay? And I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, well, I mean, this is devastating. You're getting lit up on the papers. You're getting ripped up on late night comedy. And I looked at him. I said, yeah, not only am I okay, just watch what I do with this. Watch what I turn this into. You're going to learn something about life and never giving up on the fight and getting engaged and being in the arena. Just watch what I do with it. Of course, I said that to the kid, but I didn't really know what the fuck was going to happen. <laughs> but I did say that to the kid and it turned out okay. And that's the point. Anthony, thanks so much for sharing another mission, another adventure. Great always to be on with you, Ted. Thank you for including me again. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one and see you next time. 